those researchers find themselves in the political crosshairs in a way that uh, they were not before. And we are going to see how that field, now more mature, but also under more duress, performs in 2024 when companies have taken the step of, of pulling back some of the resources they had previously previously devoted to it. And not just resources, right? Because the platforms will often argue like, well, we're still devoting a lot of time and energy and resources to elections. But they're also making policy changes like allowing users to opt out of seeing fact checks on content, right? And and the, these are changes that I think are, are, are exposing us to a disinformation risk that we were much more attuned to in 2020. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 20th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. Over the course of the last two presidential elections, efforts by social media platforms and independent researchers to prevent falsehoods from spreading about election integrity have become increasingly central to civic health. But the warning signs are flashing as we head into 2024. And platforms are arguably in a worse position to counter falsehoods today than they were in 2020. How could this be? To discuss, I sat down with Dean Jackson, who previously joined the Lawfare podcast to discuss his work as a staffer on the January 6th committee. He recently worked with the Center on Democracy and Technology to put out a new report on the challenges facing efforts to prevent the spread of election disinformation. We talked through the political, legal, and economic pressures that are making this work increasingly difficult, and what it means for 2024. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 20th. The crisis facing efforts to counter election disinformation. To start things off, can you just tell me a little bit about this report that you've helped put together with the Center for Democracy and Technology? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Quinta. This report um, came out of really some initial research that they did in 2022. And I think at the beginning, the thought was really that there had been a lot of innovative efforts in the 2020 election and then in the 2022 midterms to really respond to the issue of election disinformation in the United States, to track it, to build relationships and partnerships between civil society, academia, government, and social media companies to improve responses to it. And CDT wanted to understand what had went well with those approaches, um, how they could be improved, how they were adapting. But what happened really, and I came on halfway through that process to sort of help them take that initial batch of research and and continue it and craft it into the product that we recently released. What happened during that process is that the landscape changed dramatically. And the the title of the report is Seismic Shifts, kind of alluding to those changes. Um, Rather than writing a a fairly sort of technocratic report about how these partnerships could be administratively or procedurally improved. Uh, We wrote a report about a a space that's really increasingly under threat and um, a issue area that's in some ways regressing um, to one that looks much more like 2016 than than even where we – the improvements we had seen by 2020. Yeah, you sketch out a pretty bleak picture, I have to say. There's one point where the report writes, uh, and I quote, the 2024 election is likely to be the most vulnerable environment for political disinformation that the United States has seen in eight years. Uh, that's pretty grim. <laughs> um, so walk walk me through the different factors here. I mean, it, from what you're saying, it, it sort of shifted into this space as you were writing the report. What factors led us to this place? 
Yeah, absolutely. I um, it is a bit of a pessimistic uh, forecast. That might be an understatement, but I think it's a it, it's a realistic one. And to the extent it's too pessimistic, it's a corrective to the inclination sometimes to ignore what have become a very serious series of political threats to this field. But not all of the challenges are political, and I, I really see three trends that are sort of generating the shifts we are discussing. The first trend um, I'll just very briefly say is technological, where everyone is talking about generative artificial intelligence seemingly all of the time. There are big questions about how that's going to impact elections going forward. There are 50 elections around the world next year. We're kind of living through a, a real-time experiment in how this technology is going to change things. You know, I, I walk through in the report a, a sort of nascent discussion of I think we're all very familiar with the the way the threat is often described in media, right? That there will be kind of synthetic audio and video of uh, political candidates that will mislead the public. No one will know what is true. Disinformation will be produced on an, an even more industrial scale, an exponential or infinite increase, it's sometimes called. And I think all of that's very possible. The questions are, you know, will this be – you know, you can produce it, but can you distribute it? Can you get it in front of eyeballs? There's also, you know, we, we sort of take for granted that this technology is going to be incredibly impactful. And I think it will be impactful in a lot of ways we, we don't predict. But when it comes to political persuasion, it reminds me, the discourse reminds me a lot of the Cambridge Analytica scandal where there were all of these claims of, about the, the revolutionary potency of their advertising technology, much of which turned out to be marketing hype. And now that we are several years out and have academic studies – uh, they find that you know that kind of micro-targeted advertising, it is more effective. It has a several percentage point gain on previous types of advertising, but that's not what you would call, uh, you know, it's not mind control. And I think this this technology, it it, it's, it remains to be seen how much this will look like mind control, right? So the technological trends have people worried because they don't know how they're going to play out. They definitely enable a lot of mischief. We've already seen some of it since this report came out. We won't know what the impact will be, unfortunately. For some time, but we're we're going to learn. Uh, the second shift, though, is really um, more economic in the tech sector. The, all of the major tech platforms went through significant layoffs uh, over the last couple of years. This means that like outside partners, advocacy groups, voter protection groups, researchers, they have fewer touch points in those platforms. the The relationships that they had had in 2020 actually ended up being, and we I should say this was an interview based report, so we talked to a lot of people about this work. But those relationships ended up being not very institutionalized in many cases, often very personal. And so when that person leaves the company, you no longer even have anything but a info at email address to reach out to. And in the case of Twitter, I think we've all seen how those auto reply now. So th those, those layoffs have really made those relationships more strained than they already were. I, but I also want to say that you, know, you, you can't blame it all on the layoffs. We can't let the layoffs sort of overshadow – uh, longer standing issues or even new issues in the way tech platforms are positioning themselves politically going into 2024. Even in 2020, the majority of the content that the researchers and advocates that I interviewed, um, the majority of the content they reported to platforms went unactioned, right? They, um, they, they don't always even respond when they get tips about potentially violative content. And even when they do respond, they don't always moderate it. They often disagree with the interpretation that civil society actors have about their policies. And there's a case study in the report that I think is really interesting because it sort of shows this dynamic from multiple sides. Um, Common Cause found what they felt was a particularly egregious example of targeted harassment 
of an election worker, you know, alleging that they were complicit in ballot fraud and telling people that they should try to identify this individual, which you know could potentially have physical or lethal consequences for them. And uh, they reported this into one of the platforms, which did nothing. There was no response. And so they approached ProPublica um, with this piece of content and, and their experience, and ProPublica published a story on it. And that led actually to the platform changing their policy on targeted harassment to explicitly include election officials, which it had not before. And if you go – the platform was Facebook. And if you go to Facebook's policy change log, which to their credit they – they maintain so you can see previous versions of a policy and they highlight what has been changed between them. You can you can see that very shortly after that ProPublica story was released, they do make a change. The only change between those two versions of the policy is to add election officials to the category of individuals. So what Common Cause, I think, would say is we had to go to media to get enough attention on this for platforms to feel pressured to take action against this content. What platforms, I think, would say is, well, until – you forced us to consider it, this wasn't a violation of policy, even though I think the spirit of the policy, you could argue, would imply that election officials deserve to be protected from targeted harassment, right? They're consequential in the same way all of the other people on the list are. Some people on platforms, when I interviewed them, said, you know, it bothers them when they feel like nonprofits use media attention for publicity and fundraising purposes but in this case, they had to use media attention as leverage to get policy change. And so the, the dynamic there is, um, you know, is already strained. And after all of the trust and safety layoffs, I think that that kind of dynamic has just gotten worse to the, to the point where some groups are walking, not walking away from these relationships entirely, but really recalibrating their work, putting more emphasis on things like working with election officials, doing counter messaging and kind of putting fewer eggs in the basket of working with platforms to improve content policy. It's also worth noticing, noting that policies have changed. Platforms have uh, rolled back policies against uh, denying the results of the 2020 election. All of the platforms have reversed – all of the platforms that banned Donald Trump after the January 6th insurrection have allowed him back on. They didn't have to do these things, right? And these are actually steps backward from a trust and safety standpoint, I would argue, and um, just show that you know those aren't things that are affected by layoffs, right? Those are policy judgments that platforms are making. Uh, they also kind of bring us to um, a point I'd like to make about Twitter, which is Twitter often gets a lot of press coverage, especially since Elon Musk's takeover of the company for taking controversial actions like letting Trump back on or like you know, very dramatic workforce cuts. But other platforms will then often take the same or similar action later with sort of less coverage. So Twitter in a way actually is providing cover for things that are, are more industry trends than Twitter specific. Uh, it also brings us to the third set of trends these groups are facing, uh, which are the political trends. Um, you have Elon Musk releasing the Twitter files, the so-called Twitter files, which um, are then cited by Jim Jordan in House Judiciary hearings. He then issues subpoenas to several researchers, especially those at Stanford and the University of Washington who were part of the Election Integrity Partnership. And we should say that while we're recording this, Jim Jordan has it seems like is uh, perhaps moving toward becoming the Speaker of the House, so that that pressure may only continue. Yes. If I do not refer to him as Speaker Jordan, it's not a sign of disrespect so much as a sign of me being in a podcast studio without access to breaking news literally happening as we speak. But yeah, so, you know, there's all of this sort of political backlash around the, the enterprise of not only content moderation at tech platforms, but independent researchers who are trying to improve the practice of content moderation and protect our elections from disinformation, mostly coming from actors on the political right who have been 
sort of complicit in spreading election disinformation themselves, right? People who are complicit in the, the big lie about the 2020 election. This is accompanied by a campaign of, of other legal and rhetorical harassment, hit pieces from hyperpartisan media, online trolling, um, frivolous lawsuits. Um, if For those who work at public universities, they can be burdened with sort of superfluous FOIA requests. All of this takes them away from their work, requires their time and energy to respond to, uh, makes their institutions sort of, you know, risk-averse institutions like universities have to think about how to support this work. And for some people, it has particularly high costs. People like former Twitter integrity head Yoel Roth or Nina Jankowitz, who was very briefly the head of the Disinformation Governance Board at DHS, who come under physical threats um, for uh, the work that they did. All of this creates a sort of chilling effect in the field, and people are really worried about whether or not foundations will be as willing to fund this work going forward. How will they, how will they be able to interact with government partners when um, if you say the wrong thing in an email, that could end up in front of Congress, right? It, it really makes you question whether or not those relationships are sustainable in 2024 now that this work has been so thoroughly politicized. So there's a lot there, and I want to make sure we, we dig into all of it. But before we do, I think it would be helpful to kind of rewind the tape a little bit and take a look at what took place in this field in 2016, 2020, to kind of situate us uh, about where we are relative to those places when we head into 2024. Um, and so the, re- the report describes the 2016 and 2020 elections as, and I quote, a startup phase uh, for uh, these sort of efforts to protect information integrity during elections. Tell me a little bit about that. How does this field, really, I mean, sort of developing profession, in a sense, develop over the course of preparation for and in response to 2016 and 2020? What a great question. And what a great chance to talk about myself and my career. Uh, So I started paying attention to disinformation as an issue, what I consider to be kind of early as a, a young think tank staffer at the National Endowment for Democracy. And we were really interested at that time about how big authoritarian governments overseas were projecting themselves outward. And I got to tell you, in like 2013, it was hard to find a sympathetic ear on that topic in Washington. People did not take the issue um, seriously, which it did start to gain traction after the initial outbreak of the war in Ukraine when there was a lot of press coverage about uh, Russian disinformation in that conflict. But it's really the 2016 U.S. presidential election that catapults the issue of disinformation to the political forefront. Important to note that Disinformation, especially even social media disinformation, was not invented in the 2016 U.S. election. Right? You can find examples from Kenya, from Syria, from many other political contexts where this is percolating. But 2016 U.S. election is the big one. And in the aftershock of that election in 2017, you suddenly have an entire sort of industry of open source intelligence analysts emerge who some of them then go to work for platforms directly. Some found their own research groups. Some are based in universities. Some work in the private sector, some of the nonprofit, but they're all hunting for, you know, online, you know, disinformation campaigns, troll farms, um, just other forms of digital propaganda. And that process leads to both a lot of policy change. You see the U.S. government take this much more seriously. It, I think, sort of jumpstarts a larger conversation about social media platform accountability. And it also leads platforms to develop a great deal of their own policies around Uh, trust and safety. Going into 2020, that field, I think, had kind of matured. You had – and researchers had a sense of how digital propaganda and disinformation work. 
what the the threats and narratives and actors were likely to be that they needed to look out for. Platforms had a suite of policies and sometimes quite complex levers at their disposal to respond. Governments were were keyed into the threat, and um, there there was a machine that worked to try and protect the election. And it is difficult to say, I think, um, the extent to which that machine did or did not do its job. Obviously, uh, there was an election. There was also an insurrection. I, things could have been worse without the machine. And certainly, I think it did detect a lot of bad behavior and en- encourage a lot of policy development that was very promising. And, you know, you have to think of this as a, an iterative thing where we we sort of continually try to make the internet safe or as safe as it can be, not a problem really that you solve. But it's really over those four years that I think like this goes from a backwater issue to something that, you know, presidents and president-elects talk about. In the four years since then, you know, in the the aftermath of the insurrection, it becomes clear that disinformation has really become part of the heart, I think, of um, a major part of the Republican Party, the ascendant, perhaps now dominant part of the Republican Party. And that leads, I think, to the politicization of this work. Those researchers find themselves in the political crosshairs in a way that uh, they were not before. And we are going to see how that field, now more mature, but also under more duress, performs in 2024 when companies have taken the step of, of pulling back some of the resources they had previously previously devoted to it. And not just resources, right? Because the platforms will often argue like, well, we're still devoting a lot of time and energy and resources to elections. But they're also making policy changes like – I was just talking to someone this afternoon, but uh, like allowing users to opt out of seeing fact checks on content, right? And and the, these are changes that I think are, are, are exposing us to a disinformation risk that we were much more attuned to in 2020. And so – my my read, and I'm curious what you think of this, of why there is this sort of surge of interest in this kind of work after 2016 and then why there's been this kind of retrenchment in 2020. And it's complicated by economic factors, by the particular culture of Silicon Valley, which we can talk about in a bit. But just focusing on the kind of the DC aspect of it is that post-2016, because what people were mostly focused on was falsehoods and trolling coming from Russia, um, that there was this way that you could kind of frame this as a problem that was external to the United States that, you know, Americans needed to push back against. In 2020, the call is really coming from inside the House. And with January 6th, it becomes very, very apparent that this, as you say, is something that's really becoming increasingly core to the Republican Party. And that makes it obviously politicized in a way that it wasn't necessarily before because there was this rhetoric of, you know, we can all come together to defeat Russia, that kind of thing. That obviously is a little bit too pat, um, but I'm I'm curious what you think of that framing. No, I think that's it maybe a little bit too pat, but but by and large correct, right? The reason the federal government was willing and able to get involved in this space at all, even before Missouri v. Biden, was because um it dealt with foreign actors who don't have the First Amendment free speech protections that American citizens do. Now, you know, there's a sense in 2017 that there's this, you know, this old saying, which I think has never really been true, but that politics stops at the water's edge. And I think it is um, too simple to say that the 2016 election and the the Russian influence operations around that election were something that Russia did to the United States. Most of the narratives that Russia used were sort of pre-existing narratives in U.S. politics. I think you could have found very similar content 
on any number of conservative websites. And the, the rise of sort of hyperpartisan online media in that period and in the years since um, has done a tremendous amount of damage to U.S. democracy and in many ways looks like it rhymes with perhaps the, the types of content you were seeing out of um, out of Russian campaigns. And of course, there's also the whole question of the um, the Russia investigation, right? There was a question of whether or not there was participation, let's say, in this from members of the Trump campaign, which was just such a political sensation for years um, and, you know, sort of goes right into Trump's uh, first impeachment where he's sort of accused of activity that looks kind of similar, right? Conspiring um, or attempting to conspire with a foreign leader to release material that would be damaging to his political opponent. And so there's a way in which like, yes, this is a foreign policy challenge. We can all coalesce around it because it's a matter of U.S. national security. And yet we can't because it is also very much about us. And so you you find the Republican Party, which had previously been, I think, fairly Russo-skeptic, I would say, suddenly warming quite a bit toward Moscow in their in their foreign policy approach. The two parties have really flipped um, on Russia in the last several years. And it's, it's been astounding to watch. And that's driven, I think, entirely by our own domestic dynamics. And so the the foreign and the domestic are are two sides of the same coin. It might be an American conceit that we can separate the two as cleanly as we as we try to. It, politics, as it turns out, doesn't always stop at the water's edge. So you mentioned Missouri v. Biden, um, and I think that's a really key kind of touch point in understanding the political and the legal aspect of what we're talking about here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that case is and where it came out of? Yeah, absolutely. So Missouri v. Biden is a case... I was filed by the attorney general of Missouri and I believe joined by um, Louisiana, really alleging that the federal government had overstepped its bounds in 2020 in certain communications with social media companies around the COVID-19 pandemic and the 2020 election. And then following the election between the Biden administration and those same companies. Much of it is based on email correspondence between people at in law enforcement agencies at the National Institute of Health and also in the White House um, and the allegation is essentially that these companies were, uh, to use a, a term of art, jawboned. This term is becoming – I only recently sort of encountered this term. It's becoming increasingly common. But to explain to people who might not be familiar, this really refers to the informal use of government authority to coerce private actors, not necessarily always but often on speech-related issues. It's a particularly important for intermediaries like platforms because – the platform is less invested in whether that speech sees the light of day, right? They need to maintain a good relationship with the government. And so there's a, a strong incentive to just sort of make those problems go away by acquiescing to government requests, even when uh, the government has overstepped its authority and can't actually force the platform legally to take that content down. Um, so there, there's a lot of – there's a history of case law around jawboning going back to um, uh, the case of Bontem Books versus Rhode Island, essentially found that this type of coercion is a violation of – First Amendment rights, right? The government is allowed to persuade. The government also has a First Amendment right to speak, but it can't coerce because you have you have these rights and the fear of some kind of regulatory or other retaliatory action by government can take can force you to take actions that legally you can't be compelled to take. And so the allegation is that this is how um, certain conversations between the government around COVID-19 and the 2020 election unfolded. I would say and that that's not really held up by the evidence there was an injunction in the case that came out of a federal judge in Louisiana that really uh, curtailed the government's ability to interact with platforms at all. Issued a very broad 
prohibition on large swaths of the federal government from engaging with social media companies around matters of content. And also, I think, notably uh, made the same prohibition for government independent researchers, which um, was incredible for a number of reasons. The first is that you know, I can say on this podcast that I thought the, the those allegations were flimsy, that if you go into the emails and actually read the messages, that there, there are not clear threats. Platforms often did not take action when governments pointed out content to them. The, the tone of the emails is typically something like, we thought you would like to be aware that we found this content, which may violate your policies. Um, in the case of the NIH communications, platforms were actually sort of very happy to have government expert support to help them craft their policies because that's what public health experts are for. And you, you, that's actually a very healthy form of communication um, that I think you would want. But also there are simply just sort of factual inaccuracies in the injunction, right? I mean, Stanford in particular files a, a brief that makes the allegation that things were attributed to researchers that they did not in fact say. And so this injunction um, causes quite a stir Within government, um, you know, you have uh, federal agencies canceling meetings about things like cybersecurity with private companies because they just don't know anymore where the line is. Where are we allowed to talk or are we not allowed to talk? Let's get that meeting off the calendar until we figure that out. Uh, the injunction is overturned, though. Um, and in particular, one of the findings that stood out to me was in the the ruling overturning the injunction found that – you know, there's really no basis for barring the government from talking to independent researchers. Those researchers have a right to speak to their government. And so that's that's that alone is sort of far and beyond the line. But it also found that there are, there are many good reasons and very little sort of firm evidence to keep the NIH or DHS or the FBI from having anodyne conversations with these companies. Now, it's not to say that there's no circumstance in which they could jawbone. And we have to be cautious about that. And there are recommendations about that in the report which we can talk about. But – this is going to go to the Supreme Court, and we, it's, it's not totally clear how the lines are going to be redrawn. I will say that you know, I think the least permissive form of communication in that batch of communications are things coming from the White House, right? Because these are people close to the president who have less of a, let's say, like administrative reason to talk to platforms. And so the tone of those emails matters a lot. But I, I don't think anything in them sort of rises to the level of there will be a specific regulatory hammer that will come down on you if you do not remove – X type of content. So that's the history of the Missouri v. Biden case. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment, um, because I think that there's there is a way to tell this story that focuses on the uh, Republican Party, largely uh, sort of using legal and political tools. And, and that also comes in the form of congressional oversight to push back against this kind of research there's another way you can tell this story, um, which I'm sure is the way that uh, the Missouri Attorney General would tell the story, that Representative or perhaps Speaker Jordan would would tell the story, that focuses on you know the fact that these are private platforms that are responsible for sort of curating an enormous amount of public conversation that's happening about issues of public interest. They're having these discussions with private researchers and with the government. And, you know, the people should know what those conversations are, um, that there are, you know, legitimate concerns here about transparency. There might be legitimate concerns about, you know, when we were talking here about disinformation broadly, which, as you acknowledge in the report, is sort of a 
difficult term to to pin down. And I guess the listener should imagine an asterisk every time after we say that. Um, but, you know, when when you say we we as a platform want to take down health disinformation, for example, how do we define what that is? Is that acceptable that we have that definition hashed out between a private platform and private researchers and, you know, maybe the White House behind closed doors? Um, so wearing my devil's advocate hat, right, you can say it is actually really important to kind of push to hold this process up to the light a little bit. How would you respond to that? I actually think that's very reasonable um, because it doesn't it doesn't take much to imagine the shoe being on the other foot and uh, the fear that um, many Americans would have if, you know, in a liberal populist president were again in office and empowered to use this same type of pressure to push the platforms to take certain actions. And we don't even have to imagine it, actually. You remember after Facebook decided to label one of former President Trump's posts about the Black Lives Matter protests in which he said when the when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Was it even a day before an executive order came out that um, – asked the federal government to review the Section 230 intermediary liability protections that platforms enjoy. Now, that didn't stand and was later overturned, but like what an overt attempt to punish um, platforms. Platforms have a First Amendment right to moderate content, and they have a First Amendment right actually to do it in a way that they see fit. That is both to our benefit and bane, I think, because I have a lot of opinions about how platforms should moderate content and I can't make them do it, right? And that that bothers me as much as it bothers anyone else. But it's also very good because it means I can't make them do it and people who disagree with me should take great comfort in that just as I take comfort in the fact that they can't make them do it. Now, what would it mean to hold these conversations up to the light? I think it would be wise to hammer out some kind of whether through legislation, regulation, voluntary disclosures by the platform – Tell us when our government talks to platforms about content. Let us let us read the emails. Maybe establish a better process than email to report this type of content in so people can make the decision um, as to whether or not this has gone too far. I, I do think as a public we have a right to, to question that. Um, I don't happen to think it went too far in this instance, but for the future, I would like to see that safeguard explored. And platforms have done this for past issues, things like government requests for personal data around the world, right? They will publish the number of requests they get and where, and I think how many they complied with. That to me, whatever mechanism is most appropriate to disclose that type of information, uh, it seems reasonable to me to do so just to ensure that the threat so many people are worried about doesn't come to pass. But I also think it's really important to remember, you know, I'm invested in that because I, I think it will prevent future abuse. I don't think doing that will diffuse the political allegations the platforms are facing from the right. Um, I think it's really telling that you hear a lot about the First Amendment right of Americans to speak and how private platforms are infringing on that right when private platforms do have a right to moderate content. And there are also bills coming out of places like Florida and Texas that are trying to tell them how, right, trying to prohibit viewpoint censorship, whatever that means. Are there, are there really no viewpoints that you think should be stricken from the internet? What about ISIS propaganda, right? It gets really messy once you get into specifics, um, efforts to sort of prohibit them from taking any action against political candidates. Those are, I think, very arguably violations of, of platforms' First Amendment rights and efforts to force the platforms to carry certain types of speech. That also, I think, is a form of jawboning. I think it's unfortunate that so much of the oxygen right now is taken up by uh, allegations about things that happened in 2020. When it should be noted, Donald Trump was president. A lot of the actions that are cited in the Missouri v. Biden case – were not actually taken by the Biden administration. Um, that's an important asterisk. 
something maybe we could point out to presumptive Speaker Jordan. But I do think that it's worth having those processes in place, but we should remember that there are always going to be informal types of pressure politically that hyperpartisan media, elected officials, um, and other political actors can bring to bear on private platforms to encourage them to act a certain way. And we saw that actually around January 6th when the platforms sort of were hesitant to use every lever at their disposal to reduce the spread of sort of conspiracy theories or violent incitement, right? And they were very aware in the years leading up to the 2020 election that certain actions, certain policies might come down on far-right media in ways that could attract political ire from the right. And so they do things like include Breitbart in their news partnerships or they um, remove strikes behind the scenes against conservative news outlets and find policy justifications for doing that. And they're very aware that that the hammer could come down from the right and they could be punished for taking too strong a sen- uh, an action, even, even though they have to take some action to appease the rest of American society. And so we shouldn't pretend that that political uh, dynamic is is going to go away just because we make some procedural improvement. So I want to talk a little bit about the specific effects that this kind of pressure has. Because if we're, if we're talking about, you know, let's say we want more transparency, we want procedural reforms, that is asking for something very different than it seems like a lot of these political efforts are pushing for, which is for it just to stop. And to some extent, it has been successful in shutting a lot of work down, both sort of along official channels and just in terms of uh, threats and harassment, unfortunately. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about what you found in, in that space, in that aspect of your report? Yeah, I think people point to what happened to Nina Jankowitz as an early example, maybe sort of patient zero in a sense of how this type of pressure can actually end counter disinformation efforts, right? In this case, the Biden administration folded to pressure to shutter a DHS body, which was really a coordinating body, right? It has a kind of unfortunate name, the Disinformation Governance Board, Governance Board, which does sound somewhat authoritarian. But really, the, the point of this board is to coordinate intelligence across a handful of federal agencies and working groups. Uh, it has no real power to censor anything. But it uh, it attracts the attention of conservative media, becomes a talking point. And um, you know, Jenkowitz, the woman who was supposed to run it, um, becomes like a regular fixture on Fox News, is now suing Fox News for defamation. Um, at one point, she hires a private investigator to monitor mentions of her on the deep web because she's afraid of being targeted by far-right activists. That investigator, after a week, uh, is so concerned that he tells her to leave her home. And then, you know, in a, in a matter of weeks, that board is shut down. And, you know, Jankowitz, I think, is sort of offered a, a different position at DHS but decides to step away from public life. So we lose a public servant out of this, right? And I think to this day, um, you know, Nina still probably looks over her shoulder when she walks out her front door. Um, she has continuing legal problems with um, restraining orders and, you know, the consequences aren't over for her yet. Um, Yoel Roth, I think, would tell a similar story um, about what happened when – uh, he crossed Elon Musk, um, and Elon Musk released uh, part of his um, dissertation on kind of the internet and sexuality, but then made allegations that that Roth was advocating for pedophilia, which was he was not. Go read his dissertation. Can't believe I have to say that, but uh, you know, Roth also has to flee his home, um, and then is later called to testify before the Judiciary Committee and answer for a litany of um, alleged sins against um, speech at Twitter. 
And so those people, you know, they have really paid a human cost for this work, um, and that could come for other researchers as well. Um, most of them have faced a lower category of cost, which are sort of costs in money, time, legal headaches, and maybe just sort of fear. Uh, that has not deterred the highest profile of researchers from doing this work. You know, they're still they still care deeply about it and are still out there fighting that fight. They exist within institutions that are sometimes risk averse, and maybe um, there's always the possibility that those institutions might not stand by them. I don't think that the universities in this instance have done that. I think actually the opposite. But in interviews, people complain to me about the types of support and advice they got from institutions which are are risk averse. And in particular, they said PR playbooks aren't aren't well drafted for this type of uh, persistent adversarial pressure from the media. PR playbooks are kind of designed to to hold out until a bad news cycle blows over. The thing about this kind of adversarial activist attack is that it doesn't blow over. And one of them told me actually that you will be forced to respond at some point to the allegations. The longer you wait, the less control you have over which allegations you respond to and how. And so they're learning kind of ironically after years of studying disinformation campaigns, they're now learning how to survive as victims of one. That's been a learning curve for both them and their institutions. And one of the recommendations from the report actually is to invest more in shared strategies for coping with those problems as well as shared legal resources because uh, when you get those subpoena requests or when you get those FOIA requests or when you get a, a, a frivolous slap lawsuit, often you know they have to find some kind of pro bono legal representation. They don't have budgets in their grants for this. That could bankrupt a small organization um, or one that's not well-connected enough to – to find that and there's not exactly a pool of lawyers who are um, easily contactable and ready to do this work. Maybe there should be. So we've been looking at things in talking about the sort of political pressures from outside uh, the platforms in terms of pressures from politicians looking inward and also pressures on these independent private research groups um, and, and consortia of different groups. Um, and then you also mentioned the sort of economic pressures within platforms and on platforms. And I think that's worth digging into more as well. Um, because as you said, they're sort of tech companies as uh, zero <laughs> zero interest rates are no, no more. They're feeling the belt tighten a little bit. Um, trust and safety teams are often the first to go because they tend to be a uh, big cost and they don't obviously bring in a lot of money. But as you also pointed out, this has kind of gone along with Elon Musk taking over Twitter and sort of making the, I think it's fair to say at this point, destruction of the platform's content moderation uh, capability is kind of an ideological project. Do you see those two strands as interwoven, the sort of economic and tech ideological um, or are they coming from from different places? How do they interact? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I've considered it in great detail before, but certainly I don't buy the idea that financial pressure has forced companies like Facebook or Google to make deep cuts to trust and safety teams. They can sort of choose which teams they cut from. They also cut from HR recruiting teams and other teams. Um, I think it's important to know that trust and safety teams, it's sometimes said that they were cut especially deeply. But at Facebook and Google, people told me actually that that's not really true, that the cuts were pretty proportionate. Twitter is the most financially exposed of the platforms. Um, the cuts were deepest there. But you know, this, it's important to remember that this was when Facebook was pivoting to the metaverse, right? They seemed to find plenty of money for metaverse research. And um, I haven't spent any time in the metaverse recently. I think that money would have been better spent on trust and safety staffers. 
So, I mean, I think there's it, it's a it's a handy excuse um, in some ways to sort of divest from an area that is both a cost center and kind of a political headache. Now they they were also looking to reduce headcount because yeah the 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 days of zero interest rates are over the the COVID sort of tech stock boom had ended. Um, they probably did over hire to some extent, but you know I think they're also looking to reduce the footprint of those workers in their organization because they've gotten just nothing but headache for those investments and and the the thorny issues and failures that they spotlight. Uh, now for Musk, I do think it's ideological. I think that there's 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 a it would be hard to find a practical angle to Musk's acquisition of Twitter. He's done nothing but lose money. He's, as you said, I think just sort of dismantled not only the trust and safety team at Twitter, but sort of the entire social value of the platform. I mean, I, I left Twitter shortly after Musk's acquisition, and I don't regret it because the people I talk to who are still there just every week. It seems like it sort of descends further into you know, madness and obs- obsolescence. You know, Musk was very over when he took over Twitter that he saw Twitter's trust and safety team as a problem that, you know, the, one of the first, I think the first action he took was to fire Vijaya God, right? He kept on Yoel Roth longer than anyone I think expected, including probably Roth himself. But ultimately, um, that relationship was not compatible. Um, and they parted ways and Musk burned him very publicly, as I described. So, And we should say uh, God was the general counsel and the head of trust and safety at Twitter. Correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also testified at the Judiciary Committee. You know, just the act of giving the Twitter files to um, journalist Matt Taibbi was a was a political action, right? Meant to meant to feed a narrative, and I think quite successfully did feed a narrative about government censorship and um, you know the woke mob. And it, it's very clear that when he purchased Twitter, when he let all of the various accounts that had been banned for trolling and harassment back on, when you do things like. Uh, designate cis as a hate term you know there's a i don't know how to wrap my mind around elon musk exactly some people accuse him of sort of cultural vandalism to the extent he is doing that i think it is because he himself sees himself as the sort of king of the trolls but that's sort of ideological right you're trolling against something he's trying to make a point i think that point is that point could be very self-serving maybe he's a true believer in it but uh, there's an element there that that definitely goes beyond finance, even if it ties into the financial incentives that all the platforms have. So I want to then we've we've gone through economic and political factors. I want to circle back to the sort of tech generative AI aspect um, because I feel like in a way this was weirdly one of the more optimistic parts of the report because uh, there's there's been a lot of folks over the last year or so sort of saying generative AI is going to cause huge problems. You know we're heading into the abyss. This is going to allow people to produce falsehoods and distribute them at a mass level. And your report is a lot more cautious in terms of what you say about what this means in terms of thinking about information integrity around elections. What leads you to that caution? Yeah, thank you for asking. And um, I should say that CDT and I went through the section on generative AI several times very carefully to, to nail nail that cautious tone. So it, it really pleases me that you describe the tone as cautious. Um, I'm trying, we're trying to raise questions and concerns without, without wading too deep into alarmism, but also without coming off as, um, as playing sort of devil's advocate or as being contrarian. All right. We're, we're trying to make a, a sort of principled point about balance. You know, you say um, we've heard a lot of alarmism about elections falling into the abyss because of generative AI and that my, my take is 
is optimistic. Is it optimistic to say that we might already be at the bottom of the abyss? Well, we, we can't go further down, I guess. I don't know. I mean, so my, <laughs> my personal suspicion, and people smarter than me, I think, will disagree. And so that gives me pause. But my personal suspicion is that we have reached a saturation point for, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but for nonsense on the internet. And I just, I, I can't imagine, you know, we've already seen how persuasive things like lightly edited videos of figures like Nancy Pelosi can be. And if not persuasive, then at least compelling. People like to watch them and share them and it, it activates some political animus they have. And that, that, Animus is enough to motivate someone to show up to Nancy Pelosi's home with a hammer and attack her husband, right? So we're already in quite a bad place. There's also already so much content that there's more disinformation on the internet than any one person can consume in 24 hours. So when we when we write that the supply of disinformation will be infinite, well, I can't consume infinite information. I don't have infinite time. And so you you get to this point about production versus distribution and other people have written about, well, will generative AI increase the, the ability to distribute disinformation, to get it in front of eyeballs? Uh, it's not totally clear that it will. Some people talk about like, well, it could be used to more effectively micro-target. We're already using AI to micro-target. Right? Micro-targeting isn't done by humans with little wrenches in a lab. It, we're using AI to do micro-targeting. And we've already had the conversation about the political effect of micro-targeting. As I alluded to at the beginning of this podcast, it was the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And when we, when you look at political studies, political science studies that have been done since that scandal, you know they have found marginal increases. And politics is often a battle of inches. I'm not trying to suggest that this doesn't matter at all. And I think generative AI will matter, probably in ways that we have not yet predicted. But there will be an arms race there and just like in micro-targeting, the side that better makes use of technology will have an advantage. But I don't think – I don't necessarily know that we are on the precipice of an information apocalypse because I think we might already be post-apocalyptic. Um, now, I could be wrong and we have seen since the release of the report some like early examples of what's possible, right? We've seen in the Chicago mayoral election, it's come to light. The story has gotten more press recently that there was a synthetic audio clip of um, one of the mayoral candidates talking about police brutality in a way that you know, he never said the words, um, but they were damaging to his campaign. And it, you know, we don't know if that was determinative. There's not like a study of impact on that. Probably that race would still have gone the way it did, but it happened, right? You didn't when you saw the the sort of panic around deepfakes a few years ago around deepfake video. It was hard to find examples actually. It's no longer hard to find examples. And so we're we're going to live next year through you know, 50 countries having elections, a, a real-time experiment, and whether or not this is going to be as bad as people predict. I think the jury is out. I think that um, we might find that we are already so polarized and so disillusioned, at least in the United States, that it might be difficult to get worse. And I don't know if that's an optimistic or a positive take. I guess, though, the caveat there that I should also raise is there are Many people outside of the United States for whom perhaps things can get worse or they may not have the protections we have and that are worth thinking more about. Yeah, that's an excellent point. We've been focusing in the U.S. on this conversation, but I think Francis Haugen said that the, the U.S. gets the best version yeah. of content moderation as the product. The so, platinum standard. Exactly. So downgrade it from there for, for everywhere else. So, all right. So we've talked about a number of factors that could contribute to uh, information apocalypse or help, you know, continue the irradiated wasteland that is our post-apocalyptic informational world. What, in your view, just looking at the sort of landscape, 
heading into 2024, what is the kind of nightmare scenario in your mind that could come to pass given all of these trends? And after that, I'm going to ask you about your suggestions in the report to avoid that. But before we want to get there, I want to lay out what it is that we're trying to avoid. Yeah, I think the the specter of political violence is still with us, right? And you could see um, given the recent changes in election administration law around in states around the country, you could see states that have disagreements about whether or not to certify elections and disagreements between individuals on county boards of election, disagreements in state legislatures, legal uncertainty about how to certify competing slates of electors. I think that like the the sort of tidal wave of election disinformation that is surely coming in 2024 because it's coming every election in recent memory. We we have weakened in many ways our election administration in this country um, through funding, through changes in administration, through um, threats and targeted harassment that have chased election administration officials out of their jobs. I think that we're at sort of record levels of, of retiring election administration officials. Election poll workers are often elderly anyway, and so many of them retire and are not being replaced because who would want the headache? I worry a lot about that. And it's what's interesting to me is that's actually not a tech problem. That's a political and government governance problem that we are facing. You know, there's a big question in my mind, like 2020 was a weird year. There was a pandemic, you might recall. The Black Lives Matter protests rocked the nation. It was a traumatic year. And I think people were keyed up for violence in a way that I don't know if if something like January 6th is possible again, but it could be. And I worry about it. I do worry that there there could be violence. There could be more targeted violence, right? The Well, not to spoil any um, HBO series, but there was an HBO series that ends in violence at a Wisconsin polling center and making the election impossible to call. That's not outlandish to me, actually. When you see militia groups stalking ballot centers in Arizona, that's not impossible for me to imagine. And I worry that disinformation will will make that world more possible. So yeah, what should we do to stop it? Um, I'm curious to hear how you found the recommendations and which ones you'd like to hear more about. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I will say I was most struck by a, a line in the report saying, Many researchers, this is a quote, many researchers recognize that technology is not solely responsible for disinformation. It's a reflection of deeper societal ills, which will ultimately require combining solutions within the technology sector with solutions beyond it. Um, And the report then points to reforming the first past the post primary system to, you know, things like ranked choice voting to looking at uh, the decline of local news. And I think that, you know, that really struck me because I do feel like so many times these reports, you know, will understandably focus on on solutions to the the fields in which they're they're looking at but of course it's it's only one relatively small portion of a much bigger problem. That said, um, I think it's also a mistake to say, well, therefore there's nothing that we can do. That there is a an element of, you know, focusing on this specific area, we can figure out specific things um, that might really help help make a difference. Um, so we've talked a little about some of the proposals that that you touched on already in terms of thinking about creating sort of support or PR legal defense groups uh, for researchers who are are targeted. Um, in this way, perhaps the importance of transparency measures in terms of communications between the platforms of government to increase trust. Um, I think one of the the key recommendations that you have has to do with thinking about 
election disinformation as something that doesn't need to happen just in advance of an election, but something that needs to happen round the clock, essentially. This is not, uh, you know, something that that clicks on and off. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, like, as I said, this report was heavily informed by interviews. And one of the interview quotes that really stuck with me was that uh, there's never a time when the franchise is not under attack. If you look at the changes to election law and the the pressures on the election system over the last three years that I just discussed, they are all motivated by the big lie, by election disinformation from 2020, um, which I should again note is now permissible to spread on most major platforms. The overhang of that is tremendous and it means that you can't stop combating that narrative just because the election is over because it is being used to undermine the next election. It is we our elections are perpetually under assault from these kinds of narratives. And I should say that, you know, one of the things that we saw in 2020 is that a lot of platforms wound down um, as, as you saw, as you found in, in your own work, uh, wound down their efforts after the vote took place, which helped set up the circumstances for January 6th. That's right. That's right. And, you know, in, in 2022, what do you see? You see a lot of politicians running for secretary of state or governor or other other consequential posts where they sometimes will have direct oversight of elections where their campaign is motivated almost entirely by the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. Let's see. Was there were there any other particular recommendations you want to talk about? Well, I wanted to say on the you you flagged the recommendation about kind of widening the aperture beyond the tech sector. And my recommendation I I see it as in there for to do two things. The first is to ward off straw man arguments. Uh, it is very common in this field for me to talk about social media disinformation and then to be reminded that, you know, there's a lot of disinformation on broadcast media, in print. It, it's sort of difficult to isolate one part of the information environment out from all the others and, and demonstrate its impact in, in isolation. I, I, I fully agree with that and, and wanted to acknowledge it just because, like, let's take that off the table. Let's There are reasons to focus on reforming social media. I do think there is there are probably independent effects that should be studied and responded to. Um, so let's just get that out of the way. The other thing I wanted to do, though, is really encourage people in this field to think beyond tech about the way their work interacts with the rest of the political system. Because I do think things like gerrymandering, the first-past-the-post primary system, just the way we elect our um, representatives in this country incentivizes a, a type of – political rhetoric that has this negative feedback loop, right? I know that if if I'm running for office and I'm a, a Republican running for state legislature, uh, I have to win the base because they turn out to vote in the primary. That means I need to move to the right. If I say something extreme, I'm rewarded for it, right, with attention. The reason I have to do that is because we have a, a, a sort of two-party system that rewards, um, you know, essentially movement to the fringe. Uh, and social media, I think, just amplifies those tendencies, right? Encourages sensationalism, extremism, um, combativeness, contentiousness. And it's really interesting, you know, I think people think this is because we've we've sort of self-sorted into ideological camps, but there's a really interesting study on Twitter that actually finds that, no, people uh, see people from the opposing political aisle all the time on Twitter and they hate it. it they're in a, they see contact from the other side in a forum that is designed to promote conflict. Uh, I think our whole sort of political and media system is designed to promote conflict, and that goes beyond social media. We have to think about the interplay there. You know, there's a – to sort of paraphrase a, a recent essay by Yevgeny Muratsev, 
Uh, technology critics are, are paid to think about technology. They're paid to criticize technology. But that doesn't mean that all of the problems they observe are solely technological or that the best way to respond to the negative externalities of technology are always um, in tech policy. And I, I really want to sort of take a step back and, and think about, well, how do we help not just social media, but our democracy at large? All right. We're going to leave it there. Dean, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Quinta. It's always a pleasure. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series on the information ecosystem. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter for a website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noah Mosband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.